If you're taking notes, I've titled uh, this study, Faith of Our Fathers. Faith of Our Fathers. And this is a continuation, as I mentioned, of faith as opposed to works. All the religions of the world are works-based. We all understand that, don't we? Every religion in the world is works-based. It's based on if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, if you don't do this. And most of them, it's perhaps the gods or God, whoever they serve, will have favor on you. There's not even any guarantees. There's no seal of redemption. There's no guarantee of salvation, but all the other works. And Paul was dealing with people that thought the true and living God was also going to reward a works-based, particularly those of the household of Israel, the Jewish uh, followers of the Torah and the Tanakh, the followers of the Old Testament scriptures, believed that works would get them there and boy, did they have great reverence for Abraham. This is no, this is no, you know, Paul's not picking a name out of a hat here. This is very, very specific, and we'll get to that in just a second. But obvious, it was prevalent, so prevalent, that Paul continues writing on it, not just chapter 3, but all of chapter 4. And there's even more of it in chapter 5. Very prevalent, very works-based. And Paul goes back to Two fathers, two fathers of Israel, and they're also not just fathers of Israel, but they're fathers of our faith, aren't they? David and then Abraham, or Abraham and then David, actually, in in chronological order. Uh, To the Jewish people, not only of that day, but even still today, David and Abraham would be like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln for the United States. Men that are, have high revere. But actually, that would be a bad analogy because they're in a much higher reverence than even George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Would you agree? Much higher reverence. It's thousands of years longer, right? Much more history. David built the city of David, and Abraham is the father of Jewish people. So you've got the city of Jerusalem is assigned to David, and all the Israel people, Israelis are assigned to, or the Jewish people is assigned to Abraham. You don't get any bigger than David and Abraham, right? Moses and Elijah, there's a few others. There's only a handful that have the same kind of reverence. But the one specifically, uh, being Abraham, he's the biological father of the Jewish race, isn't he? The biological father of the Jewish nation. The patriarch, you've heard that term, right? There's only three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which would later become Israel. So those are the three patriarchs, although in a larger sense, you could actually say David's a patriarch too, and actually fathers of the faith uh, are patriarchs as well. So one being this uh, biological father, but Paul says he's also the spiritual father of those of faith, those that have faith in the Lord, faith in Christ. And then you have David, the greatest king of Israel, a foreshadowing of the king of kings. Now, this, is, uh, this concept of the fathers of our faith uh, is understood in other uh, writings in the New Testament. For example, uh, ladies. Fathers of the faith is not the only people. There's also mothers of the faith. Do you know that? 
Peter speaks to this. In 1 Peter 3.6, he says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Now, what Peter's writing up is actually women of faith, women that actually believe what God has asked them to do and to live by, and without any fear that, well, that's not going to work. They do as the Lord's commanded. And so you're the daughters of Sarah. Now, who is Sarah? She's the wife of Abraham. Mother, father. Now, this concept Peter speaks of in the second uh, epistle as well, 2 Peter 3, 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. The fathers asleep. And now, sleep is always a sign to those that are in the Lord, right? They're asleep, just their bodies, their souls and their spirit are not, but their body is asleep in the dust. It'll be raised at the resurrection since the fathers, who are the fathers? Well, Abraham, of course, is one of the fathers, but it's not just Abraham. It's all the saints that have gone before us that have walked well. Amen? Enoch, Noah, Elijah, right? And for us now, the writers, Peter would now be a father, even though he wrote it here, he's now a father in the faith to us as well, is he not? The apostles as well. So, uh, and then lastly, you and I, as we walk in the Lord, and as we leave a posterity of our own faith, we become fathers in the faith. John says, 1 John 2.13, I write to you fathers, because you have known him who's from the beginning. God's desire for every man here, and the reason why I made the plea of even the men's retreat, for example, is God desires every man here to become a father in the faith, to grow from baby or child into young man, mighty warrior, all the way into the father in the faith. Because that was David's life. You remember David was a young boy, a warrior, a king, and he becomes a father in the faith. And similarly, God wants to do that in our life. Now, Paul makes clear that Abraham is the father of us all. Now, obviously, he's not, and that's verse 16, he's not the father of us all biologically, but some of you that are Jewish here, he is the father of you genetically or biologically. But for all of us that are in faith in Christ, we have followed in the footstep of Father Abraham in believing and following the Word of God. Therefore, we're adopted in to the same family tree. Uh, you know, the, the, the kids at el, uh, the elementary school kids and vacation, you remember that song they sing, Father Abraham had many sons? This is where this, is where this concept comes from. Uh, he does have many sons and daughters, again, whose daughters you are, whose sons you are in the Lord. Now, the ancient rabbis, they wrote things in the Talmud. Remember, there's the three T's. You have the Torah, the Tanakh, which are both the Bible, Torah, first five books, Tanakh, Genesis through Malachi, and you also have the Talmud, the ancient rabbi writings, some of which were quite good, some of which were not good at all. You know, so you had, you had rabbis of faith, and you had rabbis that just kind of made up their own philosophies based on the scriptures. But the ancient rabbis, uh, they would, one of the things that was said of Abraham, it said, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed, this is what one of the rabbis believed, we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole law before it was given. He's partially right there, but not fully right. And Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. 
Well, all you have to do is read the account of Abraham to know that can't be accurate. He lied twice about Sarah, did he not? So that automatically. I don't know what his standard of perfection is, but when you lie twice, God never doesn't have that standard. The rabbis argue that Abraham kept the law perfectly even before it was given and that uh, he kept it through intuition and anticipation of God giving it. Now, this is partially correct. I believe that Abraham was aware of the, of the law. Matter of fact, we know that part of the law was very specifically given to Noah, right? Murder, for example, was made quite clear that part of the law was given under the Noahic covenant. But uh, Abraham would be the first to tell the rabbis, <laughs> uh, look, I love God. I followed him by faith. But guys, I wasn't perfect. Did you ever hear Hagar? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, you know, does that, does that do, do you see the ancient, do you see the countries around you now that hate you? That was me, <laughs> right? So, you know, there in, and there's other examples that, that we could point to, but I'm sure that God would be able to show us things that we never knew. Because even though you all look very saintly, you're not perfect either, are you? Right? And so the Lord would disagree with the rabbis, no matter how much they think that. And Paul's saying, look, I know you've probably heard all your life that Abraham had kept the law perfectly, but he didn't. And we know David didn't either, did he? Man after God's own heart. One thing to know about David is though he was a man after God's own heart, and though he fell... I was talking to my wife about this today. Uh, when you look at the life of David, the vast majority of David's life was in total abandoned consecration to the Lord. But he did have one, actually two when he numbered the people, but, uh, but you know, the one that most people know, major, major collapse, right? And it was at a time, this is what's, what, what's so important, men, to not be satisfied where you're at, but to press in. David didn't go out to battle at the time when kings go out to battle. We're in a battle right now, folks. We're in a battle until Jesus returns. The world, if you're not watching how fast things are careening, then uh, your discernment needs to be tweaked, and you're not really paying attention. All the signs are there, and they're moving faster than like riding on a New York City subway and watching the wall fly by, right? That's how fast they're moving. And so the kings had to go out and be in the battle, and David, just for a little bit of time, sat back and didn't. And it was disastrous, wasn't it? And so David wasn't perfect either. Abraham wasn't perfect. David wasn't perfect. But uh, Paul's going to go through, though they weren't perfect, these faith of our fathers, it was saving faith. And it wasn't based on they're right. Specifically, he zeroes in more on Abraham, but he does mention David. Uh, if you're taking notes, we'll look at three things. Three things tonight, whether we get to all three tonight, but we will look at these three things. Belief that covers, belief that transforms, and belief that strengthens. Belief that covers, belief that transforms, and belief that strengthens. See, our faith is belief, right? What you have faith in is what you believe in. 
Um, the Lord has, it, there's two things the Lord has really had me meditating on. I mean, I don't care if I'm driving. I don't care if I'm just uh, walking. Pray. The Lord has two words just keep coming into my mind. Well, three, actually. The first one is joy that I, that I said is our theme for the body of Christ. Because not a, no matter how bad things get out there, or no matter how bad things get in our life, we're still commanded to have joy. So that's the one the Lord keeps putting in my heart. The second two uh, seem oddly different than joy, but I would argue that they're more connected than you would think. And the second two the Lord keeps putting on my heart is commitment and belief. And actually, it'd be, it, it's fascinating when you see actually that those three are more connected because what you believe in is, helps you to determine what you commit to, and what you believe in is what gives you joy. So they, they're very, very connected. All the spiritual uh, aspects of the scriptures are connected. Certainly all the fruit of the Spirit is connected. But those things just keep popping into my Lord just keeps driving me to verse after verse, to text after text, text after text to say belief and commitment. And belief is faith. We have faith. We believe the words of God. Or we don't. We believe in some... Again, you can believe in a system of works... But your belief is misplaced, isn't it? Right? Right? I can believe that if I walk out here, I can fly. But my belief would be misplaced, wouldn't it? You would see me stumble pretty quick. Belief has to be based in truth. Right? has to be based in truth. And where do we get truth from? Well, we get that from the Lord. Now, once the Lord gives it, we have one of two options. You could argue a third option. Believe it, not believe it, or believe it and still reject it. Right? Like Satan. Satan actually knows that God is greater than him, and he still rejects God. So it's not that he doesn't know it. So he's not like, the, he's not like the, uh, the atheist that says, I don't believe in God, when Satan says, I actually do. And I still reject God, right? So there's actually three options. Believe, not believe, or believe it's true but still reject it, or just put it off, or maybe later. And so they had a belief system that was based on falsehood. It was, that works, you know, and, and that, well, we're going to be like Abraham. Abraham followed the law of per- perfection. We'll follow it to perfection, like the rich young ruler. We'll just do it that way. Well, the Holy Spirit says something completely different, and the Lord Jesus said something. Remember, Jesus started his ministry. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Didn't he? He was talking to many people who were already trying to keep the law, was he not? He came first to the household of Israel, and he's telling them to repent. Now, these were people trying to keep the law. So, uh, Jesus, you must have the wrong audience. We already keep the law. Of course, the Pharisees felt exactly that way. Said, "You've got you're barking up the wrong tree. We actually have this down." But he didn't. Let's look at this belief that covers, though. Uh, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our father, now Paul would find common ground with any Jewish person to say, "Look, can we all agree that Abraham is our father?" You'd get common agreement. You could talk to the high priest. You could talk to any of the rabbis. You could talk to any Jewish person, even a Samaritan, right? who were considered half-breed Jews, they would all agree that Abraham 
was their father. Remember the woman at the well? She even spoke of the third patriarch, Jacob. Jacob, our father. She called Jacob her father, didn't she? Right? So the patriarchs were all considered the fathers. And Abraham was the father of the fathers. You wouldn't get into disagreement. So Paul said, if we can all agree, let's t- can we just look at Abraham? Was Abraham the father of us all? Yes. Common agreement. Now let me move forward, he says. So was Abraham justified by works? If he was, he has something to boast about. But he wasn't justified by works. And Paul says, let me make it clear, the Scriptures already confirmed this. And he quotes in verse 3, which is found uh, back in Genesis 15, 6. For what does the Scripture say? Don't you love how many times Jesus says, what do the Scriptures say? Didn't Jesus say that a lot? Or he would say it this way, is it not written? You know, when you're talking to people and they say, I don't believe that, show them what the Scriptures say. But what if they don't believe the Bible? doesn't matter. Their argument is against God, not you. You can't convince a person that God is true. God convinces people that he's true. Amen? That's what spurs it all. Let, let the Scriptures out like a lion. It'll defend itself. Just say what the Scriptures say. This is what the Scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. What was? The believing God. The believing God was counted to him as righteousness. Now, James 2.23 says the exact same thing. James writes that exact same verse. James brings the same concept up. And then in Hebrews 11.8, which is often called the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11.8, by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith he obeyed. Then it goes on to say, in the 16th verse, which is not just about Abraham, but also speaking of Noah and Enoch and, and others, but now they, collectively, those, those ancient patriarchs, those fathers of the faith, now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. What does that mean? That Abraham desired eternal atonement, eternal favor with God eternal right standing with God. Not, not just a temporary thing that may be an animal sacrifice, but he, he desired a heavenly home with his father, and that could only come through complete justification by the Lord. Now, he also makes the point in verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, that's a strange statement, isn't it? To him who tries to work for their salvation, instead of building up a great resume to present to God, they're building up a huge debt. Isn't that odd? Strange, isn't it? That the more you try and impress God with works, but resist genuine repentance, you're building up debt. Why is this the case? Well, a person that believes, um, a person that believes that God owes us based on our works. So, in other words, if you truly believe, hey, if I do a lot of good works, then God owes me salvation. Well, the problem is that's your system, not His, and there's no credit there. It's just continual debt piling. God doesn't bow to our systems, does He? It's the other way around. We must actually come 
to him on his terms. We talked about this at, with the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross had a lousy resume, didn't he? It was full of sin and everything else, and the, and, the, and the only thing he could say is, Lord, have mercy upon me. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a transaction. All that sin was immediately atoned and forgiven in an instant based on faith that believed that he was the Son of God. And I truly believe to this day, and we, as we go through the rest of the, of, uh, of the outline I really believe, I don't know what your thoughts are, but I'm convinced that if the thief on the cross had been miraculously, Jesus did get him off the cross, he would have lived for Christ the rest of his life. You would have not seen him two months later back at the bar. Say, I I thought that Jesus saved you. (laughs) I know, I've already fallen away. Thank goodness he got me off the cross. I don't think that genuine conversion works that way. Amen? And we'll look at that uh, a little bit more here. But a person must believe, a person must believe what? They must believe God's condemnation of the world. Well, we saw God's condemnation. That was back in chapter 3, wasn't it? That the whole world was shut up before the Lord, that all have sinned, that none are righteous, that no man does good. So you have to believe that. Now, when you tell this to people, I've got family members that we've witnessed to for years that still say, I'm a good person. How about you? Anyone you ever met that still believes that? They really believe it. It's not. Now, remember, what you believe in is really important. If you believe that that kind of workspace, you're, it's a frightening thing to end up at the great white throne judgment and try and tell God, I thought I was a good person. Scary, isn't it? Pray for those folks. Pray earnestly for them. Pray often for them. Look for opportunities to reintroduce truth to them because it doesn't matter if you believe that or not. You'll find out one second after death that you were sadly mistaken and Satan sold you a bill of goods. But I, I've met people that really believe they're good people. Why would I need to, why would I need to put my faith in Christ? I don't, I don't kill. I don't steal. I do my taxes on time. I can rattle off the list. And generally speaking, they're pretty good citizens. And God says, yeah, but I've seen your thought life. I've seen the way you really think. I've seen little white lies you've told, and my standard's perfection. So one has to believe God's condemnation that none are righteous, no, not one. Third chapter that we just went through, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's there's no one righteous. Yes, you've got the Adolf Hitlers on one end, I get that, and then you've got the person that seems like the best neighbor you've ever had on the other end, but they're still miles away from the sun, aren't they? None righteous. Even our righteousness is filthy rags. And that's sobering for us to still remember, that all of, our, all of our collective, if all of us put all of our righteousness together we've ever done, it's still filthy rags. This we must believe. That God's word is true, that our collective, our collective works are just fig leaves. It goes all the way back to the garden. It's just fig leaves. It doesn't cover anything up. But our justification is, uh, is actually, it's not God making us perfectly righteous today. Amen? Anyone slipped up this week? Said something you wish you could take back? Thought something you wish you didn't think? Didn't pray when God told you to? Right? 
Everyone can relate to that, can't they? I don't think any, some of you are more perfect than others, but I doubt anyone since Sunday when Scott preached or when I was preaching, I bet everyone here has actually sinned at least once since then, right? So we already know that we don't live 100% righteous. So how is it that righteousness is accounted to us? This is what Paul's getting at here. That um, we are counted as perfectly righteous in the heavenlies, though we're not perfectly righteous today, are we? But we're becoming conformed to the image of Christ, but we're not perfectly righteous. Um, After we're counted as righteous, God begins making us daily process. (laughs) Painful, isn't it, sometimes, right? He shows us how unrighteous we still are, and yet in the heavenlies, we're counted as right. We're, the scriptures say we're seated in the heavenlies already. Isn't that great? That your, your destination, your, your eternal home, already there. It will culminate in the resurrection, won't it? Then in the resurrection, we'll be as he is, right? Finally, we leave every kind of sin behind, and then we're in perfect righteousness. But up until that point, there's laid in our heavenly account... The word is, uh, let me make sure I say this right, logizma. Logizma is the, is the word that's used here for accounted, and it means to reckon. It's as if to say, if the bank account says I have 100 in the bank account, I actually have 100 in the bank account. Better than FDIC insured, it's Jesus Christ insured. Amen. Paul says, this is what is accounted to Abraham, to David, to Paul himself, and all those that put their faith and trust in the Lord. Isn't it nice to know that God keeps the record? He has this book called the Lamb's Book of Life. Amen? It's better than a bank account. He will never take your name out of the Lamb's Book of Life, but you can say, I don't want to be in it anymore. That's a big difference. I hope no one here ever says that, both verbally or in your life. And by the way, you could say it verbally and still, uh, still say, Lord, that was a big mistake. Please have mercy upon me. And he would. But I'm talking about leaving and saying, I don't want this anymore and staying that way. But the Lord will never take our name out of his land's book of life. Amen? It's a permanent account on his end. And he will never take us out. It's accounted to us. Do you guys get the... It's accounted to us as righteousness. He takes the righteousness of Christ and he says, Abraham, Hagar, mess up. Lied about Sarah, mess up. But I've accounted righteousness because you actually believe me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You put your faith upon me. And so I've accounted in the heavenlies as righteousness. Sadly, years from now, your, your ancestors will come along and believe that you were perfect and think that they also are perfect. And Abraham be the first to tell him, time out. You got it all wrong. Paul, tell him. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Paul goes on. But our justification that starts with Christ's sacrifice, it must be met with repentance. Has to be met with repentance. Um, Psalm 130, verse 1. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 1. It says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. 
O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. See, one, the one that's truly been forgiven goes from reckless, do whatever they want to the fear of the Lord. Right? I have a healthy fear of the Lord. Many Christians need a healthy fear of the Lord. I, I, the Lord is not to be messed with and toyed with. God is not mocked, is he? Right? We have, a, have to have a healthy... But the forgiveness gives us... A, now, it was the fear of the Lord that brought us to forgiveness, and with forgiveness, there's a continuation of the fear of the Lord. As a matter of fact, that fear of the Lord even grows more. Not that I'm frightened of him casting me into hell, but I have a healthy fear that he is not going to let me anymore do what I want to do. Why? Because I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. You're no longer your own. This belief in the Lord that, uh, that he would take away our sins as he speaks, uh, as he speaks of David. David, uh, you can see the heart cry of David. Blessed in verse 7 are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, now David was a sinner before Bathsheba. He already needed the forgiveness of the Lord, just like everybody else. He had already sinned. But boy, it was, it was a constant reminder uh, to him of the fact that God can cover any transgression. Amen? Any transgression. That, there, that instead of our sins being imputed to us, which would be like a noose around our neck, instead it's the righteousness that's put in the bank account of heaven and the Lamb's book of life that's imputed to us, written by the very blood of Jesus, that God says, all right, this is David, but Jesus is covering David's sin and Abraham's sin, and Paul's sin, and accounting. But that comes with genuine repentance. You can't, uh, it, you have to confess with the mouth and believe in the heart. There can't be some flippant, uh, yes, Lord, uh, I want uh, you to save me because I don't want to go to hell, but I would prefer to continue to do whatever I want. That is the prayer that some might as well pray because that's the way they live. And a prayer like that is not salvation. You know, even, the, even in the book of John, it's said that many believed in Jesus, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knew that their, their, uh, their testimony of him was fake. It was fraud. It was, uh, it was, as long as you take care of me, and I can still do what I want to do. But God says, no, no, your repentance has to be through the fear of the Lord through crying out, Lord, please forgive me. I'm wretched. I'm a sinner. Please have mercy upon me. And of course, the Lord will. Psalm 111.9, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. He sent redemption to His people. He sent redemption in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.14, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We can't redeem ourselves, can we? Right? We've got nothing to offer. To redeem something is to purchase it, and only Jesus can purchase our salvation. We, we have nothing. You can't, all of us collectively around the world say, all right, what if we all pull all of our works together and let's apply it to one guy? 
Still wouldn't work, would it? Because God's standard is so perfect. You know, it's mind-boggling to me. I don't know. In just a couple of weeks, we'll remember uh, the crucifixion, and then on Easter Sunday, we'll remember the resurrection, right? Does it blow your mind? It does me. That Jesus' death is worth every other soul spending all of eternity in hell forever. Every soul that's ever lived, not just the ones that are in hell now, but if all of us rejected the Lord, his death, a three-day in the ground, it wasn't even three days, it touched three days, uh, but it touched three days. He was in the, the ground one full day, the Sabbath rest, but his death was worth all of us in hell forever and ever and ever combined. That tells you something of the value that God... I mean, try and put that in astronomical terms. The value of Jesus' blood is... There's no, way to, there's no way to describe it. It's worth more than the universe. Literally. Not figuratively. It is literally worth more than the entire universe, every single soul, every single sin. And Paul says, this is what is accounted unto you. Trust me, it's good money in the bank. Is what Paul's saying. Abraham, Paul's like, look, I love Abraham too, but he does not have that kind of value, does he? Abraham couldn't even produce a child, nor could Sarah, could they? Paul addresses that too here in the same chapter. Who gave them the child? God did. You can't produce a child, can you? None of us can. None of us can produce anything of value unless God produces it, and Jesus is the the greatest value. His blood is that valuable. This belief, this is what we believe in, and this is what covers us. Amen? I don't know about you, but that should get you excited. This is what covers us from the wrath to come. That. Is what covers us. Nothing else covers us. Anything else, a person will be naked before the Lord and really in a horrific place at that time, wouldn't they? When you read the great white throne uh, judgment, we see uh, that this is the case. You know, we're coming up. Um, we're coming up on time. I probably will save these uh, these other two bullet points: belief that transforms and belief that strengthens. But I, I really wanted to uh, do justice to Paul laying... I mean, he, this, is a, this is a meaty chapter, him laying out this case in painstaking detail. And we'll look, uh, we'll look at the, uh, what he's saying uh, in some of these other verses, uh, uh, 9 through, uh, nine through uh, 12, and even a, a continuation of that a little bit in the 13 and 14. But we'll look uh, when we get back together on this belief that transforms, and I'll give you a hint, uh, just to, just you want to read ahead, um, circumcision, as, as he speaks of it here, um, it's a pretty permanent thing. And so what Paul's going to be driving the point home is that genuine, genuine faith, the real article, the believing wholly on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on his righteousness and saying, Lord, I have no works to offer you. You have to be just like the thief on the cross. You have to say, Lord, please forgive me. Please save me. Now, when that happens, something happens that you can't orchestrate. 
I am not standing here tonight on Wednesday night, March 20th, because I had any designs to be here 20 years ago. Amen? I can promise you, I promise you, if you didn't know me 20 years ago, I had no designs to be here March 20th of 2013. There's a lot of places I might have wanted, but what made the difference? Now, when I believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it covered my sins. When it covered my sins, God changed my heart. He took out the heart of stone and in came a heart that beat after his. You can't manufacture that. If your heart doesn't beat after the Lord, you need to get before the Lord and find out why. It has to. Because your heart mirrors his. Now, there will be times when that starts to fade, but God won't let it fade. Because he has a shepherd's staff, doesn't he? He's a good shepherd. He is a, isn't he a good shepherd? Jesus doesn't let his sheep wander off. He grabs the staff and he pulls you back in, cleans you off, and says, look, I bought you. And someday you're going to preach. Or someday you're going to be a stay-at-home mom with the kids. Or someday you're going to witness to your coworkers. Or someday you're going to get up early and read a Bible and pray. What? Before, uh, before work? Yeah, yeah, you're going to do that. Really? Yeah, because I'll transform you. We'll get into that, uh, we'll get into that next week and what Paul's speaking of here. Uh, with the circumcision. So two more points we'll get back to on our neck. Uh, we'll just jump right into the belief that transforms and the belief that strengthens uh, to build on this belief that covers. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for, again, this time in your word. Uh, Lord, we are so grateful that your precious blood, worth more than the very universe itself, worth more than all of our collective. Lord, if we were tormented in hell forever, every single person in the world, it wouldn't amount to the precious blood that you shed. We see the value is so great. And Lord, forgive us for spurning or taking lightly that great value. And Lord, I pray that everyone here, Lord, that we just have a recommittal of ourselves wholly unto you. Lord, which is our reasonable service as we'll see in the 12th chapter. Lord, that you've asked us to be living sacrifices. We pray, Lord, as we leave here, that we do leave, Lord, uh, with hearts that are joyful. Lord, we have so much to be grateful for. And Lord, that we know that you're in total control of everything in the universe, uh, in this nation, around the world. Lord, I pray even tonight, as our president is in, is in Israel, Lord. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, uh, they are your chosen people for an end times work, Lord. And we pray that uh, even uh, as our leaders are there, Lord, that there will be a commitment to stand with Israel. And Lord, I know that we're far apart on certain things, but Lord, I pray that you would just uh, continue to keep our nation standing with Israel. Lord, more importantly, those of us in the church will continue to pray for our leaders, for this world, for revival, and Lord, that we would be lights and witnesses as the Apostle Paul was, as Abraham was, as David was. Lord, we would be those same witnesses in the world around us. And we just thank you again for this time this evening. Thank you for your precious blood that atones our sin and Lord continues to conform us to your righteousness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You are dismissed. God bless you all.